Hey, Don. Hello, Zach. This week, you sent me an article from The Atlantic, and the gist of the article is that pandemic school is not working. And here's the best paragraph I read. Pandemic school is clearly not working well, especially for younger children, and it's all but impossible for the 20% of American students who lack access to technology needed for remote learning. But what parents are coming to understand about their kids' education, glimpsed through Zoom window and asynchronous classwork, is that school was not always working so great before COVID-19 either. Like a tsunami that pulls away from the coast, leaving an exposed stretch of land, the pandemic has revealed longstanding inattention to students' developmental needs. Needs as basic as exercise, outdoor time, conversation, play, even sleep. All the challenges of educating young children that we have minimized for years have suddenly appeared like float sam on a beach at low tide, reeking and impossible to ignore. Parents are not only seeing how flawed and glitch-riddled remote teaching is, they're discovering that many of the problems of remote schooling are merely exacerbations of problems with in-person schooling. And Don, the article just goes on to make a lot of interesting complaints about how we educate kids, both online and also what we used to do before the pandemic. What did you think about this article? I thought it was really interesting. There's some parts that are a little bit pie in the sky, like we're going to take, we should take the kids outside every day, but there's a kernel there that really is valuable. I think education hasn't been working that great to begin with. And the sole focus on reading and math, especially at the elementary levels is at the detriment of our students. That's the thing that I kind of kept wondering as I read this article. There was a lot in this article that you and I and anybody who's in education have heard all the time. The kind of constant criticisms of in-person school. The idea that we group kids together by their age, not necessarily by their ability. The idea that we teach these subjects isolated instead of trying to bring them all together. The idea that we have this rigorous curriculum, we're constantly moving kids. We don't really give them a long time to focus on anything. We keep them indoors, we keep them seated. This is stuff that you and I have heard forever. But what I thought was just sort of interesting about this article's take was that the remote learning has exposed all of the bad things that we were doing in person. And do you think that's true? I think that's true. But on further consultation with my wife, who is wiser than me and an elementary teacher, she said that, look, it's the way the reading's done at school and in school is very different than you can do online because you can't do everybody select your own book. Pick one that interests you. And we're going to do this together. Then we're going to do this individually, then in pairs, then in small groups. And the scaffolding aspect and the choice aspect where kids get to all choose what they're interested in and what they want to read is something that can't easily be recreated. I know my wife spent nearly half a career getting books for boys just because girls oftentimes like to read and most of the books are aimed towards girls in that they're fiction, often about elaborate stories. And what boys want to read about is motorcycles and trucks and things like that. And she, with two sons ourselves, she was very determined to find things that will be really interested. Without that abundant library of different choices and the time to explore those choices and working with one or two other people, it's really kind of a challenge to recreate that specific environment. And I didn't get that when I initially read the article. And after talking to her, I understand that a little bit better. So not all the things that we do in person school is transmitting over to online school. Right. I I think the hardest thing is that when you're remote teaching, only one person can talk, right? Either you're talking or one other student is talking. And there's, you know, 25, 30, 35 other kids all listening to one person talk at a time. The thing that I really found to be so different is that in my face-to-face classroom, everybody's sort of talking or having a sidebar conversation here or there. There's definitely a time where just the teacher talks or a student raises their hand and talks, but there's so much other stuff going on. And I like that you talked about the idea of just bookshelves. In my classroom, my co-teacher has a huge bookshelf of lots of variety of books for girls, for boys, for a variety of interests. It's really difficult to offer that sort of choice and variety for kids. And while some kids are reading, we as teachers are going around and having sidebar conversations, trying to motivate, trying to get kids the choices that they need. It's really difficult when it's just one person. And that's why I sort of questioned if this article was a legitimate critique. Are they sure they're really showing 
all of the bad things that were happening in terms of face-to-face -face instruction, because I feel like what they're seeing is just one person talking at a time and not the dynamic classrooms that I've seen in a lot of public school buildings, where again, lots of things are happening. You and I are probably talking to 15 different kids in the span of two minutes with just small comments, quick questions about their lives, their interests that they have. None of that gets represented in remote learning. Instead, I think it's kind of this bland instruction that you and I have to provide that everybody can hear, everybody can follow, we have to repeat ourselves. There's a lot more things that get done. The multitasking is better in a face-to-face -face environment. And I just wondered if it's kind of unfair in this article to just sort of say, man, these Zoom meetings are really slow and they're kind of boring and only one person's talking. And I just don't know if that's exactly accurate from kind of the dynamic classrooms that I have seen. All that is true. And I agree with 100% of that. I think the other aspect of this is the situation. When kids are in school, they're engaged because they have they're locked in. They understand the environment. You have to understand that people behave differently in different environments. I believe in psychology, we call that the fundamental attribution error. It's a situation, not the person that's different. And we're assuming that the situation is constant at school and at home, but it's not. There's a lot fewer distractions at school and you're entrenched in the situation with different expectations and you behave in a different way. I know I behave differently in school than I do at home. And when I'm directly engaged with a person in physical presence, it's not only the more abundance of resources around, it's the engagement I feel by having that person in front of me and those people and my students around me who I, my fellow students who I'm interacting with much more and much more involved with than just at home through the internet. No, and that's a good point. And one of the things that I, I like to think about is kids are at home and a lot of them like to turn their cameras off and go and do the things that they like to do while they kind of have school running. When you're at school, you're right. It's a different environment. The engagement level just automatically increases. We went back for about a week and a half or so. And when we had students back, I kept asking them like, hey, you'd rather be at home right now, right? With kind of just doing whatever it was you were doing during remote learning. This is a pretty long day that we all of a sudden have to work through. Every student was like, no, I'd rather be here. And I think a lot of them kind of appreciated the sort of the classroom dynamics, even with a lot of restrictions where kids were kind of told you have to remain in your seat, you got to wear a mask. I think a lot of them found just the experience of being there, it was easier to focus. And that's why I just kind of wonder if, this article maybe isn't totally fair. I just wonder if they're judging face-to-face -face based upon remote, if that makes sense. I think that's true. And it is, that's not the part of the article I thought was interesting. What I thought was interesting in the article was, let's give us a restart. Like, let's look at this as it is what it is. And now what should we be going for? And like we said earlier, there's a lot of examples of things that the author asks for that don't seem to be very practical. However, it comes down to one paragraph that I really enjoyed, which is, for all its challenges, the pandemic presents an opportunity to rethink school entirely. What should we be demanding? And I love that last sentence. What should we be demanding as parents, as educators, as taxpayers? What should we be demanding from school? Because it, currently it seems that we're demanding high accountability for math and reading at the expense of everything else. That's a good point. And I think... Isn't that the debate that every year educators, society has about education is what is it that we want out of our schools? A part of me will sit here and in a vacuum, I can come up with my ideal classroom, right? My ideal educational experience. But then when I step back and think about what it is that I find ideal, I start to realize that I'm putting a lot of my own values in that thinking. This is what I think is important. And I think my values are probably different from yours and different from parents who are not even educators. And therefore, I think it's a really hard question to ask, what do we want? And, you know, does the pandemic focus that maybe we need to rethink this? Sure. But I do wonder, what is it then? And therefore, have you given this any thought, Don? How do you see it all working out? Well, you made an interesting point there. You said that we think about this every year, and that's true. We think about it, we talk about it, but we haven't done any legislating about it because the No Child Left Behind, which created this whole system of high stakes testing on math and, and, and reading, is 2001. We've talked about it, but we haven't really adjusted the legislation and the accountability aspects since then. Furthermore, it was Republicans who are for states' rights and local control theoretically, who are putting in this 
federal mandate and requirement for all schools to do this. Now, I'm not saying it's bad that every kid has to learn how to read and do math, but it seems like it's happening at the expense of everything else. And I don't think we're really looking at it, not at a federal level, and it's not a priority for our politicians. But I still think we're struggling to put words on what is it that we want. So, okay, maybe we say, look, all we're doing is making kids pass low-level reading and math tests. Okay, so let's say we want to take some time away from that. But what do we want to do? Does that mean we're just going to make kids sit in desks while they listen to me talk about ancient Rome more? Does that mean we're going to make them sit in desks and learn more about art or we're going to force them to to play an instrument? And therefore, is it really just we're carving up time to make kids sit more or are we dramatically rethinking what the experience is in school? Because I think that's where all of a sudden this conversation gets so hard is it's easy just to like point at one thing and say, this is bad. But then what is the alternative? And I think the alternative is limitless. It's just that can you as a society figure out what it is collectively we would like that alternative to be? Fewer requirements and more options is what I would say, because then people can pursue their paths. You know, it goes back to Thomas Dewey and teach kids about what they're interested in. And if we have so many requirements, it's hard to do other things, especially at the secondary level. I remember vividly going into middle school and then high school and being told you can pick your own classes. And I was thinking, fantastic. I'm certainly not going to pick math. And then I found out that, no, no, you get to pick one class. And that one class has to be one of these three things. And you might not get your first choice or your second choice, or my son this year got his sixth choice. There's not as many options as we'd like there to be. If we could really pursue different paths, wouldn't that be so much better? I think so. And I I agree with you about the elective thing. We say, hey, you get to choose something. But ultimately, a lot of these electives feel a lot like just the traditional core class. Kids are sitting in a desk in a row. They have some homework. They're going to read something or write something. We still seem like we're still so tied to the model of, okay, we've got to divvy up. Here's 45 minutes. We're going to call it this. But ultimately, I, I don't know if it's really that dramatically different. And in this article, which I do think is really interesting, is this person does point out, look, School is something that just tends to take place indoors. It really minimizes physical movement. It seems to try to minimize socialization among students. We seem to have a lot of kind of cookie cutter lessons that all sort of end up the same way. And again, you and I have spent years hearing people rail against every one of these things, but I've yet to ever see somebody sort of adopt a model that addresses it or, or or really offers a really alternative way. Now, you could say, isn't this what the charter school movement's all about, right? Is trying to get people out there that are offering innovative ways for people to educate students. And you could say, well, isn't that what, the, in theory, the charter school movement is supposed to be doing is taking small groups of people and, and offering dramatically different ways to educate. And then at the end, I guess we'll see how they're doing. But ultimately, it seems like a lot of charter schools are just divvying up time, making kids sit, bringing in another reading or math program. It doesn't really seem like there's a ton of innovation there. No, it doesn't. I mean, what I do think of is what we have here in Oakland County of OTEC, where kids can go learn how to build homes or do healthcare as a profession. And that's really the major focus of their day-to-day life. They still have to do their high school requirements, but most of their time is spent doing that. And I thought that's a really good example of a place where people are pursuing their interests. But there's not that much of that. And to tell you the truth, the school where I teach at, the schedule allows kids a tremendous number of opportunities to take different electives and options. The school where my sons are going to go, it's a six-period day. There's not many spots for electives. And there's not many spots to choose real where you want to go. I think it all seems to be focused on this one idea, which is get kids to college, fulfill the requirements that get them on the way to college, because college is the way that you have to go. The other thing I always just sort of think about, though, is we're still stuck in the time frame of school is 35 to 40 hours a week. It lasts seven to eight hours a day. You have to report every day. You got to put your time in every day. And in some ways, I don't think that's a bad skill of just regularly showing up. We know most of life and success is just about showing up and then kind of figuring things out from there. It's not a bad thing to require that. But School always starts with those building blocks, right? And again, we're talking about maybe, okay, do we offer more electives or not? But again, we haven't really addressed 
educational theory on how do people learn best, or even if that's allowing people to pursue their own goals or pursue their own interests. I mean, what if you're just a kid who just wants to sit on Minecraft every day and build elaborate cities? Do we have something for them that to want to do that? Yeah, we do. It's called Minecraft. And therefore, <laughs> allowing kids just to sit there in Minecraft all day, right? We, You and I hassle them. Hey, stop your Minecraft now. I need you to go read about these bold words about the ancient Sumerians now. Yeah, I, I'm with you there. And I wonder, here's the thing you brought up. So you brought up a lot of schools teaching kids to just go there and handle what you're going to handle for 40 hours a week and go to every day. And that's a lot of what work is. You go to work, you show up on time, you do what you're supposed to do, and then you leave. And so part of school is just training people to be future workers. Part of school is allowing the parents to be free to earn a profit and contribute to our economy by working. And their kids are busy, presumably learning, but regardless, busy. And then I wonder about our online students. And I don't know if I've ever read research about that. We have some online students that do everything online because you and I both teach online school. Are they doing better in the workplace? Are they able to handle the 40-hour work week just because they're used to unconventional hours? What's their outcome compared to everybody else? I'm not sure I've ever seen any data on that. That's a really good point. And in this article, it is brought up that some kids are thriving online. And some kids are feeling less anxious, pressure about the socialization of school, less bullying, but some kids or grades are going up because some of these kids can really manage themselves well. I had written this down, but one of the things when you look at those kids who are succeeding is, isn't online what we really want to see of lots of independent work time, kids having to manage themselves, kids having to resist distractions at home. Kids are performing, and I'm not saying this is for everybody, but there's a big segment that I think are enjoying this process. And therefore, just like you said about where's the data, where's the studying, I really hope there is a lot of reflection about what what is it that worked for this segment of kids? Because it seems like some of the life skills that we want really are showing up here. Want me to hazard a guess? Please. Their home places are places that are organized, that they feel comfortable, they feel supported and rewarded, that they have enough prosperity in their family for them to have a good situation where they can work well, and that the school is less than that. Well, on the other side, there's kids that school is the most organized, well-put place that they can focus and they don't have other distractions. And so I guess it comes to your comparative home environment is, in my guess, what's likely to determine whether you succeed in the situation or not. So you're saying that for some kids where maybe home is more organized and structured, school actually becomes a place that's less organized and structured? Yes. Interesting. I, that's, that's an interesting theory. And I guess, you know, one of the things I was thinking, though, is because we talked about the idea of remote learning where one person is talking, where a lot of our lessons maybe have less choice than other sorts of lessons that we might do inside of school. You could say some kids really thrive when they're just told this is how you get to point B. You just need to do this. And kids say, oh, I I can handle that. And therefore, in some ways, it's more linear. Maybe that makes it easier. Yeah, it's definitely more linear and they can pursue it at their leisure, at their time, and they can roll through in what way they find most successful. I mean, I think the best online classes and what I try to do with my online classes is here's what we're learning. Here's the concept. You can watch these videos. You can read this book. You can look at three, two, three different options of instruction and pick the one that works best for you. I know what works best for me is reading. I like to read books and articles, part of the reason why we have this podcast, this title. But other kids like to watch the lectures or the videos. Hey, teach their own. That's the good part. Maybe we should be demanding that of our schools. And that's the go-to is don't just provide this one-size-fits-all education. Allow kids to work online, to take classes online, synchronously, asynchronously, and in person. Maybe that's the demand that we should be making of our schools. That's a good point. You know, while there are some kids that are thriving, there are a lot of kids that are clearly not. Uh, The Washington Post, you and I read an article this week where they've talked about a lot of kids are failing across the nation. They talked about how D's and E's are just up dramatically in school districts when they compare it now compared to last year. And clearly there's a lot of kids that are failing. And do you think that's accurate data? Do you think we should be concerned when we hear these sort of headlines? 
Yeah, I think we should be concerned. And we could fall back on my just anecdotal idea that their home situations are worse than often school situations. But we also could go to there's a large area of Appalachia and many other places where there's not reliable internet. Well, clearly they're going to struggle. There's a large group of people who are low income or in poverty, not necessarily rural, where they don't have consistent internet or they don't have a safe home environment or heat or to work successfully. And that those kids are really struggling. For them, the best place they go to is school. I know when I taught in a school district where it was 80% free and reduced lunch, that those kids loved school because school was the place that they got to just be kids and they didn't have extra work to do, siblings to care for, that it was nice, that it was clean, that the temperature was appropriate, that they got food. And if those school's the best place you go all day and you're not going to school, that's a rough haul. And for those kids, it's a tremendous struggle. There's a sentence in the Washington Post article where they just said, students will suffer an average of seven months of learning loss. I'm not sure how you even determine that, although I'm sure there's a way. And that very well may be true. My sort of question I asked is, how much of all of these D's and E's is just because students aren't turning in assignments, and it's not that they didn't learn the material. I mean, there's a lot of research out there that shows that a lot of classrooms just assign work that kids may or may not find interesting enough to do, but when the kid sits down to take the test, they actually can pass the test. One of the things I noticed in my own class is that I think I was assigning way too many assignments for kids, and I think some of them just were really struggling to manage all of my work on top of the five other classes that they had and all of that work. And I think some kids scored low just because they weren't turning stuff in, but that didn't necessarily show how much they had learned the material, if you know what I mean. Oh, I'm sure that's absolutely true. And you've had this experience as well as I, I'm confident to say, in that I've had kids in class who've turned in next to nothing, but scored really well on tests. They just listen and they understand the concepts. They just don't want to do the work. And you see them succeed tremendously on the tests, and you say, wow, you did really well. You just, why do you have a C? You just don't turn anything. Yeah, I don't like to do work. Oh, okay, fair enough. Then they're getting Cs, but they're getting things done. There's also some kids that you and I have had where they turn in all the work, but they don't really get the concepts and they can't show it on an assessment. And so we have different situations. Right. And, and, you know, in some of the research, they kind of talk about certain kids are good at playing the quote unquote game of school, which is turning in assignments and making it look like they're real sharp and on task. And then all of a sudden they take the test and they don't do very well. And then other kids are exactly like you said. Yeah, I'm just not very interested in doing that, but they know stuff. And obviously it's easier to kind of handle those kids and engage those kids in the face-to-face environment because you can have a lot more private conversations and kind of figure out what motivates these kids to kind of help them make up for the other side of it. And again, when you're one person can talk in the remote world, it's just kind of difficult. True. Now, I read another article in the Wall Street Journal that was saying that reading scores are okay after six months of pandemic, remote, sporadic learning, but math is falling behind. Math's like five and six months. What's up with math? Zach, why are we losing in math but doing okay in reading? I will offer my unscientific opinion, and I do wonder, I got to assume the amount of screen and online time for kids has increased. Is it possible that a lot of them are unknowingly reading stuff as they're just navigating (laughs) screens online? Uh, (laughs) Despite their greatest efforts, they're forcing them to read a sentence or two, or click here, click there, find your link here for Zoom. Okay, I had to read that. Ugh. All right, well, I'm moving on. Hey, nonfiction reading is nonfiction reading, right? And that's important. I would guess that. I do have a sense though that a lot of my kids have not been reading novels and books. I do wonder what their stamina level is with reading. But then again, I don't know if lots of kids throughout America were reading lots of books over the last 50 years anyway. So therefore, functional reading, it seems like maybe that's there. In terms of math, it's hard to explain. I would just wonder if it's really the lack of drill and kill, right? I mean, it used to be kids were going home with math homework every day and just the regular rote practice. I could see where that could slip or maybe kids just haven't been doing math. Do you have any thoughts about it? I, I'm not a math teacher, obviously, so I can just you know only throw out ideas. Perhaps that is the role of the math teacher is to at least for whatever it is, let's say five hours a week, they're in a room doing math with little other alternatives, nowhere to look, nowhere to go. Teachers staring at them. They got paper and pencil. They're mathing. 
And now they're online. They could be watching Netflix. They don't have to math. Do you have to force kids to math? Is that the only way to, for them to do it? And now they're not truly forced. So they are falling behind. Could that be it? That's a good question. And I would also ask this, though. How many of the kids are able to operate functional math versus a lot of the math that we teach in school? You and I have clearly always talked a lot about the problem with schools is that it's too much math, right? And we just keep asking kids to do more and more math. And yet in our daily lives as adults, now you and I are clearly not engineers, but, you know, add, subtract, multiple, divide, take some percentages, all of that's so critical. But so much math is, is doing algebra and, and, you know, getting ready for complex uh, calculus and stuff like that. And as we know, most people are probably not going to be going down those fields or those are fields that kids could be taking later on in life. But I do wonder if you're not just regularly being provoked to do math, you're probably going to lose a lot of those skills. You think about math is one of the concrete things that happens in school where you either get the right answer or the wrong answer, but you kind of have to have the problems in front of you, or you're probably not just in your own hobby going to be looking for math problems to accomplish. True. And maybe you're reading in the most unlikely fashion. So as you navigate your way through ESPN or through whatever. However, there was another article in the Wall Street Journal that talked about another sort of interesting idea about what's coming on with remote learning is that not only are some kids D's and E's are increasing, but boys more than girls seem to be falling behind. And how concerned should we be? Now, they said before the pandemic, we were already starting to see girls achieving higher than boys. We were already starting to see these trends where boys were struggling with things like motivation. And there was already this sort of increasing achievement gap. And what they're realizing now is that teenage boys especially are at risk of being left behind even more due to this sort of remote learning system. You're a father of two boys. What did you think about that article? Well, let's be specific here. For every 100 girls in college, there's 80 boys. For every 100 girls that graduate college, only 72 boys will graduate. And that also goes with the high school rates and everything else. So there is specific data out here. Boys are struggling. Boys are also more likely to have ADHD and be, or at least be diagnosed with such. I don't know. It's something that's kind of interesting. I, I only know one girl really, really well, and I'm married to her. But I remember coaching T-ball, and I was trying to tell this group of little kids, four, five, and six-year-olds, how to play baseball or T-ball. And the girls were all staring at me and the boys were all looking at flowers and looking at the wind and the trees. And I asked my wife, why are the girls staring at me? They're like, she said, they're, you're talking. They're going to listen to you because they're girls. And I was like, oh, wow, they must, they're really focused. And I love my sons with all my heart. They are good students and great people in my mind, but they are easier distracted and they want to look around more and they're not as interested in pleasing adults, or at least that's my takeaway. And in this case, there's less accountability. There's more chances to be distracted. And if you're not really trying to please your teachers, you can find a way to slip through the cracks pretty quickly in this situation. I coach middle school girls. I coach middle school boys, both in the sport of basketball. And I'm always amazed where when I speak to girls, I can generally just explain the play or the concept that I want to try. And most kids kind of nod their head and they willingly go out and do it. I find with boys that immediately one of them wants to try to go one-on-one -on -one and just do it by themselves. And I have to yell a lot more, just kind of scream and, and threaten to kind of get them to do the exact same thing. And I don't know if that's, you know, a, a other people see. It might just be that I'm not a very good basketball coach, but I do sort of find that difference. But then that difference to me, Don, brings us back to the original point of this whole conversation is why are schools experimenting more with boy only classrooms or girl only classrooms? Is it possible that boys and girls need different methods to try and educate them, to try and teach them? And that, that, that doesn't seem to come up at all in this article. But once again, we don't seem to want to be engaging in those kinds of conversations or thinking about maybe that's how schools need to change. That is a good point. And they had a paragraph in the article that says, a good start would be to include broader and deeper curriculum and more chances for children to explore, play, and build relationships with peers and teachers. Schools should be also, also be in the business of fostering curiosity and love of learning in all children. Well, maybe the all, some children want to pursue one path versus another path. And maybe dividing classes by gender or schools by gender are something that could work really well. Maybe the Catholics have it all right. 
Yeah, that's true. And I really think there's something to be said for in the article, they talk about, you know, how we group kids by age, not by ability. And one of the things I thought was interesting, whereas they talked about why wouldn't we want to have multi-age classrooms and not just seven and eight year olds, but elementary to middle school to high school. And they talked about how when you put wide ranges of ages together, it forces kids to behave differently. The older kids need to sort of become models and leaders for the younger kids. The older kids can take an interest in helping to teach and show and demonstrate good models of behavior for the younger kids. Everybody changes a little bit differently. It's like when you hang out with your grandparents, right? All of a sudden, even the moodiest of teen has to sort of smile a little bit more and try to engage with grandpa than when if they were just with their siblings. Whereas they talk about how when you have just a strict class of seven-year-olds, all of a sudden it becomes sort of a competitive environment. Who's the smartest? Who's the fastest? Who can do this the best? Or who can be catty and sort of gossip about the other person where you don't have that when you have multi-age. And I, I do think that's sort of interesting. When I taught in Egypt, you had a K through 12 building all in one area. And I was always amazed when I saw older kids holding the hands of younger kids, like helping them get into the building and helping them get on and off the bus. Do you think that's an area where we're really feeling that and should be rethinking? I really like that idea. I like that idea a lot. I think I know my sons work well with kids that are different ages. They're happy to work with younger kids. They have friends where they do math with the youngest of the siblings and it works really, really well. I think it's all back to the regimented nature of it and the, uh, and the requirements. Seventh graders have to learn this and eighth graders have to learn that. And even at elementary school, it's strictly divided and there's expectations for each grade. And because that expectations is rooted in math and reading scores, which are mandated by the federal government. If we get rid of some of these requirements, I think that we could have a lot more flexibility and a lot better results. I think, because that's what Edie Hirsch was promoting. You and I talked about Edie Hirsch a couple podcasts ago. This was the researcher who basically was like, look, the worst thing that ever happened to schools is when they unbolted the desks from the floors. Schools need to be teaching a lot more and it should be the same across curriculums. And it was kind of that, you know, drill and kill sort of approach. And that was his theory. One of the best books I've ever read about education is called In Search of Deeper Learning. I think I mentioned it on another podcast. And these researchers just went for like two years and just sat in classes and they were looking for schools that were doing the best at getting kids to think and learn at a deeper level. It seems like basically they sort of came out with kind of one conclusion. And they went to some schools where kids were given a hard challenge or kids were just allowed to absolutely spend all day pursuing their interests. And what they found is some kids were killing it. Some kids were coming up with the most original projects in the world. They were taking Shakespeare and, and mirroring it with the life of girls in Afghanistan. And it was like, oh my God, this is incredible, the sort of thinking that was going on. At the same time, there were a lot of kids just sitting around doing nothing all day long. It kind of was like, look, what do you want? If you just kind of leave kids to choose, some are going to blow you away with what they do. Other kids are going to just kind of make it look like they're busy and have nothing to show for themselves after the course of months. And most likely the teachers that are there are going to be too busy helping out the kids that are motivated and working on these projects and challenging them. And they'll keep trying to go back to the kids that can't achieve anything but at the end of the day, are we as a society comfortable with maybe some kids that just show nothing for pursuing their own interests? Are we going to be all right with that, do you think? I think that situation that you just described is one that will have a greater ceiling or higher ceiling for those kids that are motivated and want to achieve and a lower floor for those that don't. And I'm okay with that. As opposed to the system we have currently now, which has a lower ceiling because everybody's got to go through the same thing and a higher floor that doesn't let people fall. I mean, No Child Left Behind is basically putting a floor on what will happen. But what happens is, if kids can't read, then the teacher puts all their effort and time into those kids that can't read. And the kids that can are just sent off to go do read on their own. And that's at the early elementary level, but at the higher level, I think it's to a certain extent true as well, that students that are really able to do concepts and do skills are left alone to with little guidance because the teachers are assessed by how well they bring up the bottom. There's a documentary called Most Likely to Succeed that shows off one of these schools where kids are given a lot of autonomy to achieve things that they're interested in. 
In fact, the school that they highlight is also a school in that book, In Search of Deeper Learning. But one of the most interesting things was, as you were just saying, look, let kids fail or achieve and then give them feedback. And the one thing I really liked about their methods was kids were expected to come up with an original project and they had to present it to their community. And some kids, again, are just knocking this out of the park in this documentary. But a couple kids literally have nothing to show for it at the end. But what's amazing is, Instead of giving the kids grades, they have a parent-teacher conferences with the kid. And the kid has to stand up in front of the teachers and their parents and own what they've done. And the kids that didn't complete anything, it's fascinating. As the teachers listen to the kids and the kids are trying to explain why they basically failed, which I think there's a lot of learning in that. And then the teachers just pull out, look, this is what we noticed from you over the last four months. You didn't get started. You kept changing your idea. You kept saying you had a good path and you didn't. We kept trying to help you and you didn't. And meanwhile, the parents are just there. And to me, it seemed like the most dramatic experience of learning that a person could handle. And then the next part is they're like, well, this next semester, we're going to try this all again. And I hope that you've learned something. And then here we go. What do you think about that? I love the idea, but it's one that assumes that all households are created equal and that the parents were there. I mean, I think you and I've had the similar experience in that we have parent-teacher conferences. The parents that are most likely to show up are the parents of the kids that are getting the highest grades. And that may be a part of why the kids got the highest grades because their parents are very, very involved because they have the time, they have the energy, they have the positive experience with schooling that makes them want to be involved in school. And those kids that struggle the most their parents are the least involved because they're busy. They can't do it. They have health problems. They had a poor interaction with schools in the first place, and they don't want to ever walk into a school again. This system assumes that all the parents are going to be involved at the equal level, and they'll be supportive of their children at the equal level, and that just doesn't isn't the case. Well, and therefore, I feel like you're now making the argument for why it's important to have that bar at the bottom, right? How do we try to reach the other side of it. And I think that that's really important. I, it makes me wonder if instead of this idea of kids just sort of pursue their interests is really the most important thing about having adults in your life. And I know that Bill Cosby is a terrible human being, but before he was a terrible human being, I watched an interview with him and they were talking about this documentary called The Boys of Baraka. And it was just about impoverished, disadvantaged children and trying to learn. And the, the, the comment that he made, he said, put a body on them. And he basically just goes on to talk about the idea that, look, stop trying to, to tinker with this curriculum or that curriculum. Kids need adults that care. They're going to hold them accountable. They're going to challenge them. They're going to love them. That are going to you know, take care of them. And I just always think like, that, isn't this what this ultimately is about, is remote learning has basically forced kids to work with a lot of computer programs, a lot of IXL or math online by themselves, the self-paced, right? The kids are learning or not based upon an algorithm. And it's just fewer and fewer adults that are in their face challenging them, motivating them, right? Telling them when they've done good, giving them specific feedback. And is ultimately this about lowering the teacher-student ratio. And I know that there's studies out there that say, no, 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 like that doesn't prove learning gains. But ultimately from like a humanistic level, I just wonder if kids need more adults in their lives, giving them feedback every step of the way. That was very skillful where you put me in a situation where I disproved my, uh, or argued against the very previous point. Yeah, I think you're right. I think the search for this is the hardest thing in education. I know I've been through various programs that have been instituted by one district or another where there is a homeroom or a group of kids that I'm responsible for that I can engage with and I should build a relationship with them over four years because that allows them to be better, more successful. And yes, the data is all there that kids that have a strong relationship with a mentor or adult that is looking at them and helping them is going to make yield great results. How to create those relationships outside of the household is still a bit of a mystery. I mean, it's an expensive proposition. Lowering the student-teacher ratio can work, but doesn't seem to. It seems to in our mind, but doesn't seem to in person. When we were in California, the student-teacher ratio was 20 to 1 through K's grades for kindergarten through third grade. Oh, no, it was 1 through 3. And it yielded little results and cost billions of dollars. Maybe it's not the teacher. Maybe it's somebody else that needs to be involved. Maybe the teacher's doing all they can, and or they're just not capable of it. How do we find other adults that are going to be involved? That's a good point. And the other thing I was just thinking too is, 
some teachers, I think, see it as part of their job to relate to kids, to, to get to know them as people. The relationship piece is something they really see as really important. But let's face it, Don, like you and I, we became teachers. And the only thing that kind of said that we're teachers now is that we passed content certification tests, right? And therefore, there are a lot of teachers that are like, look, I'm not into this touchy-feely stuff, or I didn't get into this job to, to have relationships with kids. I got into this job to teach math or to teach economics or whatever topic. And therefore, there really is no overarching emphasis upon all teachers to see their job differently. And therefore, there's a lot of individual interpretation. Some people knock it out of the park when it comes to going above and beyond curriculum. Others don't see it as that's their job. And I think they make a good point. It's not like we are evaluated on how many meaningful relationships we have with kids. We're evaluated on whether or not we get them through low-level reading and math tests. Yeah. And although I've been told a million times, the most important factor in determining a student's success in my class is their bond with me. The time in the to make that bond, to maintain that bond is just not there. And yet also, by the way, enforce the dress code and make sure they don't have their hat on or make sure they don't go to the washroom too much or they vape or put away their phone. There's just so many demands. I don't feel like it's a teacher. I feel like it has to be a bond with another person. I like how you said all those other things, which is basically like, so now I have to hassle the same kid that I have a relationship for, right? Yeah, exactly. Yes. I'm going to build a relationship. By the way, take off your hat, take off your shirt that says some sort of drug or alcohol reference and be here on time because otherwise I'm going to penalize you and put away your phone. But I love my phone and my mom's texting me. I'm sorry, put away your phone. But once again, those things aren't really brought up in this article of reforming schools, right? I mean, we all say, oh, the relationship matters. But then we just always put that as one of the many things that are going on in schools. But again, that doesn't seem to be at the heart of rethinking or rebuilding schools either. And one of the things I just sort of was thinking about is, like, again, value statements, right? What you value in your ideal school might be different than mine or some parent that's not even a teacher. But the other thing I was thinking about is, scale and scale matters. You and I might be able to create a really cool experience for like five kids that all had a story read to them last night and all had breakfast when they came to their class and are super motivated. But it gets really hard to make that educational experience be meaningful when it's 20, 30, 40 kids. It gets even harder when you think on the building or district level where you've got hundreds, thousands, ten thousands of kids. And therefore, it's so easy to poke holes at schools, but nobody ever thinks about it from a scale perspective. Think about what public schools do do, Don. They provide a consistent curriculum that goes K to 12. They provide a place where every kid is accounted for at every moment of the day. There's a huge paper trail to, to trail back to any teacher or any kid or what's supposed to be going on in that school. That's really difficult to recreate if you want to just blow the whole thing up and rethink what schools should be doing. Maybe those should be our demands. Those are the demands the article talks about because that's what schools are good at. And I would argue it's pretty incredible what schools are doing right now in a field where very little has changed in 20, if not 100 years. They are all of a sudden doing an entirely different job in a different situation, trying, if not succeeding, in accessing and addressing every student, giving them situations in which they can learn. Not every student is learning, but they're putting a situation out there where it's possible if you can get the technology, if you can get the support or the time. It's pretty impressive what they're doing with not that much money. I would agree with you. In fact, I really think that schools are very dynamic places. I am really impressed to see kind of where a lot of teaching and classroom experiences are at today than they were even 15 years ago when I started teaching. And when I think about my experience as a high school student, I'm always kind of blown away of, wow, like we're really offering kids a lot of choices. We're, we're offering kids a lot of opportunities to have a voice. We are minimizing sort of the amount of homework that you and I had. And while the article in the Atlantic there is just like schools haven't changed, I would argue they kind of have. Now, we still put kids in the box. We still make everybody, you know, account for all their minutes and stuff like that. I guess you could say some of the mechanics haven't changed, but I still feel like a lot of the ways teachers behave has changed. Yeah. At the same time, I think good teaching is good teaching. And a teacher that could engage students in a meaningful conversation, discussion in the 1970s would be a good teacher still today. But there's different parameters about how this is run. Whenever I talk to you about wanting to see our government do more and how 
it's always all this gridlock. You always give me the sobering thing of, Zach, that's what America wants, is a slow-moving government that really doesn't do anything. And it made me kind of think about public schools and that, are you sure people really want a different public school? I know it's easy to take pot shots, just like it's easy to say, I want the American government to do this. I was thinking about this this morning and that schools are very fair and equitable for the most part. They try to teach, treat every family and individual student learner in the best way they can and try to give them their individual needs. Schools serve as a free quasi kind of babysitting service masked with lots of activities that try to challenge kids. Everybody gets to go to school. At the end of it, there's a magic ticket that says you you put in enough time and that's going to allow you to go to college or allow you to get a job that will be better from people that don't get that high school diploma. And at the same time, at the end of all of these opportunities we offer people, it's a free public good and everybody gets to still complain about why they don't like it. Doesn't that make school great? <laughs> Yes, 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 it does. And I think the biggest complaints that schools probably hear is it's not fair or equitable, but every attempt is made to be fair and equitable. And yeah, it is a public good that is offering something that is of value, certainly. And certainly the possibilities and the um, availability is valuable. Yeah, I, I guess we're nitpicking, trying to say, what more should we demand? Maybe we should be satisfied with what schools do already. I wanted to ask you two more questions. And, and one was in the Washington Post article, there was an expert who just said, look, with all of this feeling that's go, that goes on, here's the sentence that he just wrote, the best thing the nation can do would be to offer everyone a do-over. And I was thinking about that. I have a first grader and she's sort of struggling a little bit with trying to stay engaged my wife and I definitely wonder about how much we've learned this year or if we're falling behind because of the, the system. And therefore, I kind of would love if my school district offered me a do-over. Not mandatory, but if you would like to repeat the first grade, we're going we're gonna to offer that to anybody that feels like this was just a bad year. What do you think about that? Do you think that's a good idea? Oh, I kind of like that idea. You need state funding. That would be a lot of money for the state to kick out to make that possible. But yeah, just a do-over. I think that could I mean, work. It seems like that's just federal stimulus dollars. Again, we spend billions, right? And therefore, why wouldn't we just attach that much more into you know the system and just say, look, anybody that's that's opted for a redo, we're just gonna pick up the check on the federal level. I just think that like this is obviously a national problem. Not everybody's gonna want to do over, but I think that would maybe provide relief mentally for a lot of families that feel like maybe this is just not gone very well. It would be an interesting time, but also make it rough for colleges for 12th graders that are graduating with two classes, possibly. But yeah, my brother's doing this with his son. He could have gone to kindergarten or he could have gone to preschool. So he redshirted and he's doing kindergarten next year. And shouldn't everybody have this opportunity just to do it again? I'm pretty sure my eighth grader's not going to want to do eighth grade again. No, and, and I was jealous. We have friends, too, that had a kindergartner, and they kind of just foresaw that this was going to be a very weird year. And they chose Young Fives because they just didn't want to like burn a year. And I just, I've kind of been jealous of them because my daughter missed that by a year. And my daughter will probably have spent more time as an online student by the time this is all said and done than she has in a physical classroom. And I don't know. I just think that that doesn't seem like something that's that impossible to solve. I like the idea personally. I'm in. Contact your legislator. They're getting a deal at the federal level. Looks like it's going to happen. That's true. Maybe I should write a letter. I'm sure it'll be read. <laughs> Finally, last kind of question here is the author of the Atlantic article. And again, I think this Atlantic article is very thought provoking. Any parent educator should read it for all of the different ideas that are there. And of course, we'll have a link to it in our show notes is this person then makes a proposal. And they just said that for the rest of the school year, we should be offering school outdoors, sort of a pandemic camp. And the focus should just be on achieving skills, achieving projects, solving challenges, and just kind of wandering outside and looking at nature and learning that way. Do you like that idea? I love that idea. You're talking to a guy, though, that has three structures, which you've seen in our backyard, four actually, that were all built during pandemic times. Three are elevated structures, some with concrete and roofing shingles that my sons built entirely on their own, just because I subsidized building materials because I'd rather have them doing that or something else. Also, a zip line that we built. Those are A projects as far as I'm concerned. I'd rather have them doing that than online activities, which are less meritorious. However, 
I don't know if all teachers are ready to do that. I know some teachers are. I know I'm in. It's also got to be a little bit of a challenge up there in uh, <laughs> up there in the Porcupine Mountains of the Houghton Hancock area. It's the black flies that will slow them down in June. <laughs> it's not the cold and the snow and the ice. It's the black flies. It would make me want to be inside. My only thing is, is again, I read this and at first you're like, yes, kids are outside. They're running around. They're getting fresh air in their lungs. And then the first thing I thought about is Mr. McLaughlin, like pulling down an oak leaf and trying to explain photosynthesis to a group of 20 kids. And meanwhile, I can already envision eight of the kids in the back just kind of, you know, patting each other on the bottom and running around playing tag and throwing acorns at each other and not really paying attention. And once again, that level of engagement that we've talked about and that I could poke holes just like that. I've taken students to the zoo. I've done class field trips to places in museums where some of the kids are very interested in the learning experience. Other kids are zoned out and just looking for ways to kind of have their own fun, if you will. And are we willing to tolerate that? That's my only question. Not that this is a bad idea, but I don't know if it's the silver bullet that this person brings it up to be. I don't think this person understands the deep, deep misery that some people feel when they have to be outdoors, standing, moving, and interactive with nature, also uncomfortable, that many children feel. They're not used to that uncomfortable. It's a treasure hunt, then. What we should do, Don, is we should save America's mm -hmm. schools by offering a treasure hunt. Let's bury a, da a daily treasure, Bald Mountain State Park, and just say every day there'll be an A awarded to whoever buying, finds a treasure. And by the way, there's $100 too. That's what we're going to start class with. Go. And watch out for the rifle range. <laughs> watch out for the rifle range. And more dangerous, the hunters that are outside the rifle range. Sorry. One final question then is it's easy to have 2020 hindsight. And a lot of schools obviously didn't start in the fall due to legitimate reasons for COVID-19. One idea my wife had, and I think this is a really good one, was do you think schools should have just rented out a bunch of wedding tents and just started school outside or built lean-tos with just tarps off the side of the building and just said, we're going to run school as long as we can until it's just bitterly cold, but we're just going to do this outside. Do you think that would have worked? Many colleges did that, and I've read about that, but they have class more seldom, and there's uh, and you have older people that are more apt to handle that. Uh, yeah, I'm in, I like this idea. It really reminds me of um, going to Hiroshima, Japan, and they at the Atomic Bomb Museum, they have pictures of the teachers teaching school underneath trees the day after the bomb dropped because they didn't miss a day. All the children were outside the city building fire breaks when the bomb hit, and when they came back, they were teaching them. And it's just amazing to me. And I think that we could have stepped up and did this. I'm not sure how well our students would handle the discomfort. I think our teachers are handling this whole thing pretty well. Maybe they'd handle it better if they had a chalkboard outside underneath a uh, tarp. Right. And I wondered about that because I kept trying to say, like, okay, what's bad about my idea? And I, and I critiqued it of, well, the weather might be kind of chilly some days. And I was like, well, I would just bundle up my kids and send them with enough clothes to make it. But then I also just went back to thinking, like, isn't that the great part about schools? Schools are fair and equitable. And while that solution might work for me, maybe it doesn't work for other people. And once again, that's why schools kind of live in the world they are, right? They are trying to teach everybody. And at the same time, I can still sit here and critique them all I want. Absolutely. Well, Don, it's been a pleasure talking with, with you about this topic, and I look forward to talking with you next week. By the way, you said 2020 hindsight. Do you think 2020 hindsight is going to come to mean something else as it reminds us of 2020? Will that be a whole different meaning behind that term? Oh, that's a really good question. Does it just mean the most strangest year of your life, and all of a sudden you just start saying things like, well, that's really 2020 over there? That's a good point. I don't know. <laughs> Let's start using it. We'll coin it. We'll coin it. That and our, you know, yeah, we'll put the intellectual property in our treasure chest and then someone can own that. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Zach, have a good day. Take care, Don. Bye.